Well, welcome uh, to the third in our series of COVID-19 podcasts. The topic of this podcast is the new national surveillance programme on neurological complications of COVID-19 or CoRENERVE. I'm not sure if I've said that right, Ben, but I'm sure that you'll correct me as we go on. Dr. Benedict Michael is spearheading um, this group and I was delighted to be invited to form part of the steering uh, group on the study. Ben's also an Encephalitis Society trustee and vice chair of our scientific advisory panel, so I'm especially delighted uh, to welcome you to this podcast, Ben. Um, would you like to say a few words about who you are, what you do, and any work that you've been involved with relating to um, COVID-19 outbreak? Sure. Well, um, firstly, thanks very much for having me. Um, it's a, a more, one of my more pleasant Zoom conferences that I've been having to deal with. Um, yeah, so uh, for those that don't know me, I'm a senior clinician scientist fellow and a consultant neurologist. And I work on the wards caring for patients with neurological infections like encephalitis uh, and in the lab trying to understand how viruses cause encephalitis, trying to develop targets to reduce brain swelling. Um, during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, I've been involved largely with caring for patients who've had neurological complications of COVID-19 uh, being redeployed, um, uh, which we can talk a bit more about later on, um, and also uh, the, the National Surveillance Study, which I talked about. I can hear a little baby in the background. Are we going to have one of those viral moments where the door behind you opens and, and children run in and, uh, and someone's going to grab them? <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite possibly, yeah. <laughs> Well, look, it's the first time that we've had the chance to talk properly in a while, given how busy you've been. How are you? The honest answer? Mm. Knackered. <laughs> Knackered. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you know, in terms of clinical neurological infectious diseases, there's not that many of us. And, um, you know, we're increasingly recognising that a relatively small proportion are developing neurological complications, but they're often those that are really severely affected. Um, and, and that's why we've been really working hard to move at pace to get a, a national surveillance study up at, at a speed I've just, you know, unheard of in comparison to some other studies I've been involved with where it can take nine or 12 months or longer even to get, get going. Um, so I'm grateful to all the study management group and all our collaborators that have made that possible, really. Um, yeah. Great. Well, we're going to talk um, quite a bit about that new programme because it's super exciting. But at the moment, for, for viewers that are watching, um, you know, what's your typical working day during a COVID-19 outbreak? What does it look like? Yeah, I wish there was a typical day. <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, so from a research point of view, uh, as I sort of alluded to earlier on, it's constant Zoom conferences throughout the day to make sure all the various collaborators across the specialities are working together cohesively and aligned and in this, taking this forward in the same direction. Um, but then, you know, as you can see, I'm off to the hospital <laughs> any minute as soon as we finished um, to, uh, to help out <clears throat> really wherever we're needed. Um, uh, and we're doing kind of crazy shifts and some strange nights and odd patterns and working in, in specialties we're not used to, in hospitals we're not used to, um, but just all trying to chip in where we can. So how, how have you and your colleagues been managing? Um, so far, so good, really. Actually, things have been, been going well. Um, I think it's fair to say there's been a lot of collegiate working across specialities and between hospitals that wouldn't normally be <laughs> so collegiate. Um, so it's, it's working well. Everyone's pulling together. It's great. Nurses that are used to being 
just dealing with very stable outpatients are now on acute wards where sick patients are being admitted. Uh, neurologists that are used to doing uh, sort of long-term diseases like dementia are now on the front line doing stroke and, and things where, you know, you really acute management makes a huge difference. Um, but it, it has, it, I mean, it has been hard though, really, uh, at times. So on the wards where we have, uh, where we, we're isolating the patients who are positive for SARS-CoV-2, so that the COVID-19 patients, um, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking because uh, you see um, colleagues um, uh, breaking down, you know, I know some pretty tough, you know, scouse nurses who, uh, who, uh, who are sort of breaking down on a nearly daily basis. Um, but of course, it's even harder for the relatives and, you know, the loved ones of those affected. So we sort of got to take it on the chin and just crack on, really. Do things like um, clap for NHS uh, help with morale, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, it may, I it, don't underestimate what a huge difference it makes. People were out with their vuvuzelas and their horns and things last night on our street. And um, you want to get the chance, I had to take the kids out, you know, on their daily bike ride to get a bit of fresh air and exercise and, you know, <laughs> get out the crazy. Um, the, uh, you know, seeing the, the chalk paintings on, you know, on, on the streets uh, that people have done for the NHS and, the, you know, the rainbows in, in the kids are drawn in their windows. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think it, uh, it really brings us all together. It's great. That's amazing. Um, what are your thoughts on how long the pandemic and self-distancing will last? Well, there's some things we know and there's some things we don't, right? But, I mean, as of yesterday, we know it's going to be another three weeks of what we've been doing for the last three weeks. Um, and it looks increasingly like even once the isolated home policy is lifted, we're likely to have some form of restrictions. Um, exactly how that will look is unclear, um, but some form of social distancing policy is, is inevitable to, 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 you know, for us all to pull together to reduce the chances of the, there being a severe second peak further down the line. Yeah. Um, have you got any advice for people who are listening to, to the podcast? Um, so, as anyone that knows me uh, will know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of this current government, um, but I can say that unlike in, in many other countries, and for example, I lived in the, in the US for a while, it, our, our government do largely seem to be following the advice of scientists and public health experts. Um, and look, we can already see that our collective action is having an effect in terms of, you know, reducing that exponential curve that we were, so, we were seeing at the beginning. So. Uh, my advice to people would be uh, keep it up what you're doing is working mm. yeah that sounds like good advice and um i i agree with you on on your government perspective we've had many chats we 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 share political views um but like you actually i think that they've done um probably a, a really good job and have worked very very well with public health england and the various other um national and international advice that they've been taking so overall I, I agree with you but let's move to this um this national surveillance program um so what is the national surveillance program on neurological complications of covid19 and why has it been created so <clears throat> It first began with anecdotal reports that we were hearing either from colleagues or uh, a couple of cases that initially came out of China where people had severe neuro neurological complications during the course of their COVID-19 infection. Um, uh, and actually during the H1N1, the, the swine flu pandemic, I helped lead the national surveillance study here in the UK then. And what we realised was that 
as I mentioned, although it's a small percentage, they're the severely affected patients. And when one looks at a pandemic infection at a population level, it's very easy to miss the granularity of the detail of this, this smaller population that can easily be missed. Um, so, you know, I realized we needed to have a collaborative approach across specialities, across hospitals, across geographical regions with interested parties, not just at a population level, but at the patient level, what's, what's happening out there. Um, because look, there are critical questions we don't currently have the answers to. Who, who, is, who is it that's at risk of developing neurological complications of COVID-19? When they do develop complications, are they complications affecting the brain or the spinal cord or the peripheral nerves? And we also don't know what the heterogeneous sorts of different treatments patients are receiving out there. And then we don't know how patients are doing in terms of their outcomes. And really, we're going to answer these critical questions. We've got to come together. We've got to collect patients from across these regions um, to try and start to answer these questions. Yeah, so who, who's involved and um, what is the programme going to entail? So, I mean, I've been absolutely delighted that really everyone has, has come together in the, in the scientific uh, and the medical community uh, in a really fantastic way. So we are an, an amalgamation of a number of professional bodies, including, but not limited to, um, the Association of British Neurologists, the British Paediatric Neurology Association, the British Association of Stroke Physicians, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the National Encephalitis Multidisciplinary Team, amongst many, many others. Um, and what we have done is we've set up a surveillance network where they are all contacting their membership on a regular basis to ask them to complete a very, very short notification form that takes literally three or four minutes so that busy doctors on busy wards can quickly input their data so we get the denominator data on what's the demography of the patients they're seeing, which hospitals, and in particular, what of the various sorts of neurological complications that can happen they're seeing. And then at that point, when we've got that notification data, we're then asking the uh, doctors to complete a more detailed case record form, which will allow us to understand really a little bit more about the patient's symptoms and signs, what their investigations look like, for example, what their cerebrospinal fluid testing showed, how confident can we be that it's COVID-19 that's related to that neurological problem, and as I say, how the patients do so that we can uh, really engage with understanding which patients would do well and unfortunately which patients are likely to do poorly. Mm. Um, what's the, going to be the process of the programme uh, going forward? What, what, um, what does it look like in terms of, so people have done um, reporting of their patients, then what's going to happen? So it's really important that we act in a timely manner, you know, in this context. So what we're planning to do is regular updates to the professional bodies and the wider medical uh, and allied communities in part through um, early preprint scientific publications, but also making sure that we raise awareness of our work through social media, through our social networks and our collaborators like the Encephalitis Society, so that we can really help to inform clinicians on the front line um, who may only see a couple of cases, but if they've got a wealth of knowledge of 50 similar cases to draw on, uh, it's gonna be really help inform their practice in a timely fashion. Right. Do you think then um, that we're going to be seeing um, neurological complications from COVID-19 for survivors? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Thus far, the patients that we're aware of that have had neurological complications have developed them at the time of their COVID-19 disease. So they are sick 
in hospital with severe respiratory problems and fevers at the time they developed the neurological problems. We haven't yet had cases where people have recovered from COVID-19, <coughs> excuse me, and subsequently developed a neurological problem. But, you know, we're being vigilant, we're keeping the surveillance programme running, um, and we, we will be looking for that early if that is occurring. What type of neurological complications do you think can be expected, or is that an unknown at the moment? Well, there's a few things we know. There have been some cases of encephalitis reported uh, in the literature, although unfortunately, particularly the cases reported from China have been lacking in detail for us to be confident that it was really true encephalitis. Um, certainly we see encephalopathy, which is, you know, as you all know, the, the broad syndrome of an altered mental state um, or confusion or coma, but not necessarily with evidence of brain inflammation for example, on the spinal fluid, on the brain imaging. Although there has been one case from the US where it very clearly was acute necrotizing encephalitis, which is a very severe form of encephalitis. Mm. What is, has been a little bit of a surprise is that we're seeing stroke um, and we're seeing quite a lot of stroke. Um, what is yet to be determined is how much that is, <clears throat> excuse me, someone who's had very severe COVID-19 and they were at risk of a stroke anyway and therefore they've had a stroke or how much you know because the body was under stress or how much that is a direct active effect of COVID-19. What I can say is that we are seeing strokes in patients with COVID-19 who don't have the conventional risk factors like diabetes and smoking and high cholesterol etc. Um, so it, you know we have to be vigilant to the possibility that COVID-19 may be directly uh, attributable to these strokes. And what we also don't know, and this sort of goes to your previous question about what might happen to those that have survived, is whether there might be a portion who develop an autoimmune encephalitis after they've recovered from the infection. Um, and that's one of the things that we'll be looking out for. Wow. Um, is, is there anything else that you'd like viewers to know um, uh, about the, uh, the National Surveillance Programme? Um, so not specifically about the National Surveillance Programme, but other than to say we have some experience from other respiratory virus pandemics, from SARS, from MERS, uh, as I mentioned, from H1N1. So I wouldn't want them to think that the medical community is completely flying blind here. We have some evidence from the literature to draw on. But given the ability of this current virus to seemingly transmit from person to person so actively and cause a pandemic on such scale so rapidly we are going to have a very high denominator for who this smaller percentage developed neurological complications are so perhaps for the first time this is an opportunity for us to really start to understand who is at risk and how to you know identify them and start treatment early mm. Well, obviously, the National Surveillance Programme is, is incredibly important. And as well as having, you know, many of our ordinary interested um, members viewing this podcast, we know that uh, many of our professional members will also uh, be viewing the podcast. So where do people go um, to report these cases? So um, if you are a member of the Association of British Neurologists or the Paediatric Association or the Stroke Association or the Psychiatrists, um, you could just go to your professional body's website. Uh, most of them are live or, or going online very soon, i.e. within hours or days. Um, uh, or if in that, um, go to our website at www.coronerve.com 
uh, where you find a little bit more information about what we're doing and a, a notification form at least in the ball rolling. Oh, that's great, thank you. For anybody that can hear it, I'm sorry, my dog's barking now in the background. Um, <laughs> we need to drown out the children. <laughs> um, well, thanks very much, Ben. Um, is there anything else that you, you want to ask us or anything before I say some closing remarks? Well, um, you know, as, as a charity, you know, and having been on the board of trustees, you know, I must, you know, I know this must be a really difficult time for the charity. You know, you've got people working from home, you've got, you know, across the charitable sector, lost income. And then that combined with the, the dual difficulty of having more people to do, you know, to help. Um, you know, I'm sure you're getting thousands of calls from across the, across the globe with people who are worried about encephalitis and COVID-19. How are things yeah. going? How are things going at the charities? Yeah, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, our um, uh, calls uh, for support have doubled. Um, I think part of that is people's anxieties around this, but um, also, you know, um, from also from families, as you've described, who've, who've got relatives um, in hospital with neurological complications. So certainly the demand for our services has doubled. <laughs> income has plummeted <laughs> um you know people um shouldn't underestimate you know we've had all of our fundraising events you know for the, over the next few months we had like 80 fundraising events none of them can take place uh we don't have much money in the bank which as a trustee you'll already know but what little we did have um uh, that was invested was you know almost wiped out overnight when when all of this took place and then of course you know we also have corporate supporters as well who give to us financially and and those gifts i think you know there's a big question mark over them because people are not able to go to work and and um you know operate their businesses so i think you know am i losing sleep over it i think the answer to that is yes yeah i mean it's really important that um you know people support the important work that that you guys at the Incophilitis Society do as much as they can now more than ever really. Yeah absolutely uh, I think you know it, it's critical I think that people understand I think I think we're in we're in no okay place at the moment we being um, an international organization that um, operates around the world we were already very well set up digitally and I think I think that's been a huge bonus for us so we were we were able to migrate um, well, actually, uh, the senior team, you know, uh, migrated everybody to home working within within about five days. Um, and we had most of the digital things um, already in place that we needed. There was a little bit of com um, computer equipment uh, that needed to be bought, um, which we were able to action really quickly. But they did an incredible job um, as soon as we realized what was happening of migrating all of our team. Um, to home working um you know we're super keen to make sure that everybody's morale is kept up we're, we're keeping all of our team working we haven't furloughed anybody uh because we need them <laughs> you know um we're operating around the world and, and we've got a staff group of 12 um and and they're all uh we need to keep every one of them um on the day job and and so um yeah i mean we do need people's support absolutely uh, now more than ever yeah absolutely Absolutely. Well, look, as we bring this podcast to a close, is there, is there anything else that you'd like to say before I make a few kind of closing remarks? Um, only one thing, really. I mean, actually, genuinely never before in peacetime or in our lifetimes 
have we actually seen the impact that collective action can have? Um, yeah, and when we come out of this, and you know, we will, um, I hope really that all of us keep the memory of this time, uh, you know, a time when we valued our NHS staff, our social care staff, our charity sector, in the, our, our supply chain of food even, um, you know, and if we can apply the experiences from this, you know, going forward, we can significantly, significantly address the problems we have in our health and social care infrastructure, the support of our charitable sector, and the collective action that's needed for our planet. And, you know, despite the tragedies of this time, you know, maybe we might have an even brighter future on the other side. Yeah, I, I think, you know, wise words, uh, as, as I would always expect from you, Ben. Um, you know, we've covered quite a lot of questions. Um, we're really, really grateful to you taking time out of what's probably, you know, going to be one of the busiest times of, of your careers. And we're all deeply grateful um, to people like you who are on, on the front line. And, you know, on behalf of all of our members, please accept our deep and, and grateful thanks for all that you do, along with the rest of our trustees and our scientific advisors. Um, we also want to, um, as we finish up, reassure viewers um, that the Encephalitis Society services remain unaffected by this outbreak. So if people who are watching feel that they want any support or information, then the teams are still, uh, still active and still working. And they can go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat online with someone. Um, but as Ben said, and as I said, you know, if anybody watching this can support our work at this really challenging time, then please, please visit encephalitis.info forward slash donate. Uh, and most of all, wash your hands um, and stay safe, everybody. Ben, thank you so much um, for doing this. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Oh, thank you.